Hi guys, welcome to episode four of Books with Jen. If you are watching slash listening to this on YouTube and you would prefer to download an audio file of the podcast to take with you when you're out and about walking the dog on your commute, then you can go to jen-campbell.com forward slash podcast where you can download an audio file of this podcast and all the other podcasts are available there too. Now on this month's podcast, I just have one guest. It's my friend Sophie Haddock, who's also an author. Sophie is from Germany and she now lives in London and we started talking in the bookshop that I used to work at um, and that was a couple of years ago and occasionally we get together for drinks and talk about writing process and why we write the things that we do Um, and I think that Sophie has lots of wonderful insights and things to say so I wanted to get her on here so that we could kind of have a conversation about why we write the things that we do um, and our paths and who we are and responsibilities that we feel towards writing about certain subjects for instance Sophie is Jewish and German Um, and all of the pressure and responsibility that you feel coming from writing from that perspective. Now, Sophie has two books out at the moment and is currently writing her third. I would recommend that you go and check them out. Her books that are out right now are called Of Love and Other Wars and The Registrar's Manual for Detecting Forced Marriages. So if you're watching this on YouTube, I'll link those in the description. If you're just listening to it, make a note and go and Google those later. So grab yourself a cup of tea. Sophie and I are going to have a rambling chat about what it means to be a writer, about why the hell we write the things that we do, about cultures, about boundaries, about migration, and lots of lots of different things as well. So here we go. Hi, Sophie. Hello. Hello. I've been meaning to get Sophie onto, well, I haven't been doing the podcast that long, but I was thinking about getting her in, onto the YouTube channel, if not the podcast, because in the least patronising way, I find everything you do really fascinating. <laughs> I just like to observe and listen to the things that you have to say. Especially my gardening. Is that what you find especially fascinating? The gardening is the most fascinating thing, I have to say it is. Do you want to tell the people about how you got into writing to begin with? Let's, let's begin, begin there. Um, so, well, when I was little, I always just thought I was going to be a writer and I wrote stories for my friends and I thought that was just going to be... You know, what was going to happen? I was going to write more and more stories for my friends and then for other people and then I would be publishing books. Yeah. Um, And then I... Well, and then in my teenage years, I suddenly realised that what real literature was, I started reading (laughs) serious literature and I suddenly thought, well, that's not me because it's serious literature and actually a writer isn't just a person who writes, it's like a certain kind of person who's like born to be a writer, who's like thinks in a certain way and actually that's not me so I thought okay that's actually not a very realistic program to just become a writer and I thought well I'll do something more practical I'll become a journalist because then I can write but I have a specific purpose to my writing and and so that's what I did for many years then I worked as a journalist but um I always really wanted to write novels anyway and then I wrote my first novel while I was still working as a journalist. And then since then, I've been sort of freelancing and doing journalism and fiction side by side. Can we talk about your journalism when you lived in Japan and you were spying on North Korea? Because <laughs> I love this. <laughs> that was in many ways, that was my least active journalism because I don't speak Japanese. And before, I, I worked for a news agency for writers and they sent me first to Italy and that was fine because I spoke Italian and I could work as a proper journalist and then later they sent me to France and that was also fine because I speak French but in between I really wanted to go to Japan and I didn't speak Japanese and so I went there as an editor. Well we should say where did you grow up by the way because we've we've kind of jumped Oh I grew up I grew up in Germany Um, and then 
So there I was in, in Tokyo, actually quite frustrated because I was editing and I'm a really terrible editor. But there were many interesting things that I had, a, like, I had so much fun in Tokyo just privately. I met lovely, lovely people and, um, and there was the North Korean news feed and that was interesting because part of the Bureau's duty was to monitor the North Korean news feed because it would always be things like our dear leader walked across a bridge and the skies opened and the birds started singing, but then like, oh, we tested a nuclear missile. And so there would be these like news snippets buried in non-news. I really, really want people to know because they want people to be nervous about it. And Scary then they, you know, it's a good opportunity for them to call the Japanese imperialist dogs or something and, you know, get, get their message out. I mean, what's awful is that when you read it, it reads like such a parody, but of course that's the problem with a lot of media, you know, coming out of dictatorships is that they always read like a parody but then it's so deadly serious and yeah. you're kind of tempted to laugh about it because because it is like you're reading 1984 it is like it it's, it's crazy it is. but then the fact that no those are real lives and that's actually really happening and to people yeah exactly people. i would recommend if you guys want to read about north korea is reading um nothing to envy by barbara dimmick yeah it is interesting and to me i guess because i you know i grew up in a divided country to me when i talk to i have some south korean friends and they're like I feel the only ones who really understand what that's like. I mean, it, you know, North and South Korea is much more extreme than East and West Germany, but things like the, the sort of... It's almost hard to put into words, but like one of my South Korean friends said that her family was divided, her grandfather went to the South and her sister stayed in the North. Mm. And now there are these programs where families are reunited and then it's filmed and it's a bit of like a South North, I don't know if they're doing it right now, but at some point it was the sunshine policy of getting families together. And that was all very televised, and, you mm. know, great diplomatic effort. And she said her grandfather didn't want to do that because he felt that often on TV when you saw the North Koreans, they were completely brainwashed and it was just this big propaganda spectacle. And he thought if he met his sister again after all those decades and she was just brainwashing she wasn't her sister anymore that would somehow be more terrible mm. and there was something in there that I felt like I really 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 understood and something just about the pain of the divided country and people who are so similar and they're yours but they're also different and that really reflected something that I mean I was um, 10 when the wall fell and this whole process even of consciousness of having this other mm. self or this divided self that felt really familiar so do you think that that crops up in your work a lot, um, talking about that other and divided self, or not? Maybe, you know, maybe. I don't know, it's so hard to... I know, I mean, it's hard to so look at yourself it? from the outside. But, you know, I always had this memory of... When I was in primary school, I knew there was East Germany and that we couldn't go there and that was a dictatorship. Mm-hmm. But then I remember that I read this book, this children's book, that was by an East German author about East German child who was my age. And I really remembered that book so clearly. And I remember it was the first time I really realised that there were people over there and that they were living there. Because before, I always thought from our point of view, oh, there's over there. And in that book, the boy talks about over there and it was my heart. Yeah. And it was this, somehow this massive mental leap of the people there who... I mean, I'm using a grown-up word now who have agency, but I, it was this, like, they see us. We don't just think about them. They think about us. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I actually 
few months ago I tried to track down this book and it's out of print because I spoke to my brothers about it and they remembered it as well and I found it I found it amazing internet I love the internet was it as good as you remembered though it's incredible it's such a great book oh good it's short (laughs) and it's wonderful (laughs) and it's totally autobiographical as it happens like the author is based on the author's son and they try what they went to the west and it's just a short sweet children's book but it's such a good book and then when I read it again I realized that there were loads of parallels and that must have been part of why I connected you know the boy was the same age as I was then um they lived in Berlin my granny lived in West Berlin and you know lots of tiny things about their granny bought them chocolate pudding, I really like chocolate, and it was just like this, these images were like, oh, of course, that's partly, that must have been why I connected so much, because it was something that was so similar, and yet different. Yeah, I think that if you're looking at something that is other to you, like, from your point of view, looking at East Germany, which has been, you understand it, or at that point you understand it as some kind of foreign place, some other, where it's different, to cling to things that you recognise have that greater level of importance to you and that greater level of impact. Um, and I think that's why it's important to have stories like that. I was talking, on the last podcast, um, Janet Ellis was on and she was talking about historical fiction and how she feels that sometimes writers write about people in the past as though they were different and they had different emotions and they didn't feel the same things and that's just bollocks. Oh, definitely. Of course yeah. they do. Um, and, yeah, so that the human element of, of everything and bringing things together and having things that we can notice in something that is, is at the same time very different. Yeah, I think it's so interesting what you say about people in the past because I think there's sometimes this temptation of like people in the past never had sex, they never misbehaved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and they're always sort of stiff up a lip. But then that's because we see them in black and white photos or we see them in portraits and that's how they look. But to actually bring them alive and, I mean, they also must have met, they all, you know, people in sexual situations and they also must have misbehaved and not just in the stereotypical ways yeah um, just but, different yeah. forms of scandal perhaps different forms of scandal yes yeah but do you feel because of where you grew up and I know that you can't think of your own past and your own family as, as something different you know what I mean like you can't imagine having a different family or growing up somewhere else because this is your life and I don't want to be like your life's really interesting because that's really patronizing but at the same time your life is really interesting <laughs> So, I want to ask, do you feel, because of where you grew up and your family history, do you feel as a writer that you have that kind of responsibility? So, for instance, me, I feel like I have a responsibility to write about, like, people with deformities or people not being straight or whatever. I I mean, I know that we're not responsible for talking about who we are and we're not responsible for, like, representing a whole host of people and you can only ever speak on behalf of yourself, but... When you have those own experiences, do you feel that responsibility? So with Germany, there is such history there, and especially growing up in a Germany that was still divided, as you say, until you were 10. And also, you're Jewish, right? Yes, Yes, I'm actually, well, I'm a convert, so I've got this super crazy identity. (laughs) Very, very strange. So being from Germany, being Jewish, I mean, that's a whole host of things and a whole host of histories and then going out into the world and researching other divided countries like Korea and being in Japan, do you feel that responsibility to, to write about it? Or do you find that you write about it because it is part of who you are anyway? That's such a good question. Because I think for a while I thought, 
Oh, I really don't want to write about Germany because that would be so obvious. Because <laughs> I'm German and it wouldn't be very creative because, mm. like, it would just be writing about me. And then I think I've gotten over that. And also I thought, oh, people are going to be so boring. Oh, is that hard? I could get just writing about Germany again. But then... Or they'll be like, oh, it's so autobiographical. I can see you in this. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That's why, like, the novel in progress, the protagonist is East German. I thought that was a stroke of genius because I thought... I mean, she's sort of my age, and we share many similarities, but I thought, if anyone says it's that autobiographical, I can be like, oh, she's East German. <laughs> I'm West German, and it's very, very different. I'm so happy I was in a high for three weeks after that particular choice. But um, I got over it because I decided, well, I don't know if it's a responsibility, but it's simply something that you've had that experience. Yeah. And so you know so much about it. It's probably going to appear... Regardless, like on in some form, it might be yeah. in some completely different materialized in a completely different way, but it's probably going to be influencing your writing anyway. Yeah, and also if not you, then who's going to do it? Like, are you going to rely? Because I do think, I mean, I think all stories should be told. So, for example, the story of Germany is important, you know. And if I'm not going to write about it, then what am I doing? Am I just saying, well, I still think it should be told, just not by me? That's kind of like a cop out. So, yeah. and, and I do, you know, after all, speak German, I know it's about Germany, so I felt like, well, I should actually use that. Maybe that's a responsibility, that if you do have access to that point of view, then it does make sense to use that and to tell that story. Yeah, um, I mean, when it's not like people are saying to you, that's all you can write about, and that you have to write about that all the time. Because I used to have that kind of knee-jerk reaction. I remember people saying to me, oh, you know, I'm looking forward to when you write a novel in the future where a character just happens to have a UC syndrome and I got really like defensive about that I was like that's not my job and then actually I thought about it and I was like how can I get really annoyed when people represent it like well not UC no one's ever read about that but represent deformities in a bad way or use those tropes as evil people having like bad bodies or whatever and I suppose yeah it's it's like complaining about what happens in Parliament if you haven't voted? It's like, you have no right to bitch about it if you're yeah. not doing it yourself. So I think there is some truth in that somewhere, though, obviously, we all write about a whole host of other things and not just one thing that defines us, and we don't have to continuously write about that. But you're right. We do have that... I mean, it would be silly, almost in a way, to not use something like that because it's part... Everyone else is doing that. Yeah, Everyone else yeah. is using their experience. And like you say, I mean, I do get really annoyed... When I see other people doing it badly because they're, you know, they haven't immersed themselves, maybe, or they don't seem to care, or they just use, you know, the Holocaust as a plot point, oh, or, gosh. you know, sort of like just because they sort of run out, I don't know, or they kind of or work with that material in a very shallow way or in a very sensationalist way. And then I feel like, well, I can't be annoyed about it. If I know, by the way, a writer, um, an English writer who I think writes so well about Germany is John Le Carre. Oh, yeah. Um, I think the spy who came in from the cold, I think he somehow gets certain things about Germany. So, I don't know, it's almost like you read it and, and you think, oh, he completely sees that, these sort of layers of history, or I think even in the spy who came in from the cold, there's a reference of anti-Semitism in East Germany and how that existed despite the sort of national narrative of uh, anti-fascism and kind of really interesting, super, super subtle things that mm. you'd think... I mean, he is, you know, he is a literary writer as well, a thriller writer, obviously, but um, maybe you wouldn't expect it with someone who's more of a thriller writer, but yeah. he'd, be my, he'd be my top choice. The last time I saw you, you were just about to embark on this amazing walk. 
So, how did that go? Can you tell us about that? Tell, tell the people. <laughs> oh, the walk. Oh, the walk, yes. How to summarise this. So, at the end of the Second World War, Poland was basically shifted to the left. If you just visualise a map and you visualise Poland, and at the end of the Second World War, the Red Army emptied out the eastern German provinces and people were expelled, and then they moved Polish people from what's now Belarus and moved them into the empty German houses and thus Poland was sort of shifted to the left as one of those big Russian projects. Um, and my family were among the people who were expelled. So my mum and my grandma were um, on, they, they boarded one of the refugee ships and went west and, and then other family members stayed behind because some people were ill and some made it out and some didn't and some sadly sort of vanished and possibly sort of froze to death on the refugee trail. Well, it's not really known. So, and then um, my mum and my grandma lived for refugees for many years. So I can't say that growing up I had any disadvantage because of that background, you know. I've had, um, everything's always sort of been open to me. Um, but it was interesting, it was something that wasn't really talked about for a long, long time. And then Germans did talk about it, but it's obviously it's difficult story because Germany started the war and then yet people like you know some of my ancestors in that situation were victims and mm. lost their homes but in the greater scheme of things well so many bad things happen so how exactly do you mourn that and I think that's been a real difficulty so with that in mind I I, I decided to walk to my grandma's hometown because I discovered that there was this hiking trail and you can walk there and I thought well actually what would be really nice is just to see what it's like now like I don't I my to go on that journey to go on that journey and to see what the towns are like now and what the houses are like now and what Poland is like and I thought I'd never been to Poland and it's you know a neighboring country and it's got such a rich history and um and I was just really interested to see what it's like there so where is this walk from and to? How far does it stretch? So it's from the Polish-German border to the town of... Well, it, was, it used to be called Stolpmünde and it's now called Ustka. And then I started walking. And, and as good as that, walking is so slow, so you can sort of think about all the things you didn't really think about when you were planning the trip. So for a start, I thought, oh, the Poles might not like it. You know, what are they going to say if I say I'm going back to see the old houses because it's a really sensitive issue and there's been all these things about Germans can't buy houses there because of course many Polish people used to fear that Germans would buy back the land in some way and you know all of that so um, I was a bit apprehensive but then people were so amazing people were just so friendly and incredible and the fact that many of the Poles who live there were also forcibly removed from their homes and have since gone back to Belarus to look at their houses a lot of people seem to think that was totally natural and actually totally What's understood. What's something that. like closure in there somewhere? Yeah, I don't know what it was. It was kind of... I mean, my mum doesn't want to go back and she initially didn't want me to go back. But then but then once I started walking, she was really keen on updates and she was so pleased to hear that um, the towns are looking really great and even things like 
you know, all the facades have been restored with EU funding and it's kind of like actually some really beautiful places. And didn't you say that the walk along the way that you sleep in barns, like people can volunteer their property as places for walkers to stay on this route? That was on a different part of the route that had been more developed the part where I was on. I had this idea, I thought lots of people would do it. I was like the only one. <laughs> I was like, it's called the Pomeranian Way and it's beautiful and do walk along it. It needs more footfall. <laughs> it's the only one. And some of the maps were a bit wrong and and it was all I mean partly it was a bit of a disaster because it was just like involved walking along a motorway in rural Poland. But then there were these other amazing highlights and there was this lovely Polish woman who was running a sort of bed and breakfast and I told her about oh that I wanted to see sort of like you know this old German house and she said oh this is this is an old German house and just told me the story of her house and how one day an old man appeared outside her garden and said well I lived in this house as a child and I just want to tell you you have my blessing but could I see if the old pear tree is still there? Oh. My grandfather planted. And, and then they became great friends and sort of visited each other. So, so no, it was, it, was a really, it was a really good trip. You can go on this walk and listen to other people's stories whilst piecing together bits of your own family stories. I think that's really interesting. Did, is, am I right in thinking that the place where you started is actually full of neo-Nazis? I remember we had this conversation. <laughs> was that actually the case? Oh, that was... Well, I was supposed to start a bit further into Germany... And then I couldn't because I had to work on my manuscript. I had to shorten it a bit. Um, since then, it is quite weird. Some of the places where I was supposed to stay at first have since been in the news now because of the whole refugee thing and sort of, you know, neo-Nazis gaining strength in some areas. And it's tiny, it's these tiny places that are in the news for mm. neo-Nazis. So I, I missed that. But there were some strange things. I mean, in Poland, you can go to these bunkers and shoot machine guns as a tourist attraction and it's very ever present I mean the past is very very present and there are these German cemeteries and you know lots of like you know German writings and churches and then Polish writings and it's very yeah it's very multi-layered that way do you feel like you're almost walking through this timeless place like you can't really feel like what is now and what has gone and everything is so mixed up together it must feel very eerie at times yeah it did feel I think one thing that was difficult was just so and really exhausting towards the end was that so many things were not there anymore so my husband joined me for the last few days and I was very the other thing I was trying to do was sort of see what was left of the German community the Jewish communities um because there were many Jewish communities along there. And that was really hard because that was just, like, gone. So, for mm. example, the German cemeteries, you'd still be in a forest and there'd be a German tombstone and that would be quite eerie. Um, but it would sort of be there. Well, I went to some cemeteries where, you know, some of my ancestors were maybe buried and the tombstones were no longer there, but there was a cemetery. So you could see that there was something. And, it, you know, church was something German in it. But then, for example, we went somewhere where there was supposed to be a Jewish cemetery and it was just a field. I mean, it was just a, an overgrown kid. There were no, there was no sign whatsoever, and we went somewhere where there was supposed to be a synagogue, but it was burned down by the Nazis. It was just a, a car park, so it was nothing. And then there, there was this sort of plaque that had been put there in two thousand three. Yeah. And so that that towards the end just became. I mean, I, I have to say it was quite a relief to go back to London in a way where 
life seemed all about we're here now we live here now mm. and you know there's Polish people here now and German yeah. people and Polish Jewish people and German Jewish people and and you're not you don't have this ever present sense of loss of something that used to be there like oh there used to be a big multi-faith community here and it is no longer here and mm. that sort of over and over again we were just having this conversation so basically I'd like you to relay what you've already <laughs> said to me pretend it's authentic like you're saying it for the first time <laughs> um but uh about researching stories in your family's past and I want the story about Mary <laughs> I think this is so fun so this is I mean I think this is partly a story I'm drawn to because I'm so my my parents are not Jewish and I converted to Judaism and I mean the party I feel very at home with the Jewish community in North London because it's obviously you know many it's made up in large part by emigrants from Germany and Austria so actually in a weird way I think sometimes to British people it seems weird like oh you're German wouldn't it be weird to be in a Jewish community but then actually Jewish German history have been intertwined for so long, or they were intertwined for so long, and it, you know, the the the, the Nazis really um, put an end to it. And so, it's actually, you know, for a long time it was a very enmeshed identity. And mm. certainly, when I was <laughs> families or you know synagogue in North London, I mean, it, it much of it feels just incredibly familiar. You know, Yiddish, for example. Mm. Anyway, so in my own family, there was this. Um, Jewish aunt who her father always said she had two names three names she had three names Mary Maria and Masha because her father had been an apprentice draper in London Mm. so he was a total anglophile he gave us three daughters English names I think like something like Mary Nancy and Kitty or something but they also had a bit of a Russian Stegel connection, hence the Masha, and then Maria, because they converted to Christianity. So when the Nazis came to power, obviously none of that mattered, and she was declared Jewish because of her ancestry. Mm. Um, but she was good friends with the mayor, and the mayor warned her and said that people are going to come and deport that town's Jews the next day so he warned her sadly he didn't warn the other people and actually I think it was about 300 people in that Jewish community and they were deported but she um, managed to get on a train to Berlin and some of this I've verified independently with sort of like archive documents but there's this part that I only know through a little memoir my grandma wrote which is that Tante Mary then stayed with friends and in sort of basements. And then towards the end of the war, she stayed in the Grunewald forest with this group of gay men. And my granny wasn't particularly homophobic, but so as part of her generation, she just never talked about gay people, you know, either in a bad or good way. That was like the only time, but it's there in print. <laughs> it's Tantamiri and the gay men. In a forest. In a forest. <laughs> my grandma wrote that. And... And, and and Tante Mary survived and stayed in Berlin, and um, and and my mum, you know, grew up knowing her as well. And apparently, she always said that oh, they were such charming young men. <laughs> and so I always had this image of Tante Mary with this bunch of guys in the forest. But I don't know anything else about it. It's something I'd love to research at some point. If anyone knows about gay communities in hiding in the Gornevart Forest 
please get in touch. Yeah. I'd be very interested. I really, really want Sophie to write a book about this. We were talking about this before. I really think it sounds like some kind of modern Snow White. Just this woman hanging out in forests with a lot of guys, um, hiding from the Nazis. I mean, this just is it's fascinating. It does sound like a fairy tale, even down to the details that, you know, her dad had three children and gave her three names. Like, it's so, it's so formulaic. It so sounds like a fairy tale. And I'm so happy. Well, it sounds weird to say this. I'm so happy that that kind of thing exists, even though obviously it must have been shit to go and hide out from the Nazis in a forest. I'm sure it's not glamorous at all, but... That kind of story is out there. That is begging to be told somewhere. So yeah, if anyone knows about gay men living in the forest away from the Nazis with a girl called Mary, please get in touch. We want to know about yes. this. Mary Jakobsen, or possibly Maria Jakobsen, or possibly Masha. You know, met a, a woman of many names. I I never met her. That's what it should be called. The book. I do have a photo of her, so that I can I can contribute that. I do have a photo of her, <laughs> um, <laughs> but she's always been there and the sort of ancestral arrangement is something you know story a story yeah that I'd love to explore further so immigration is obviously very important to you I mean you hope you have moved here from Germany and there's all this shit going on at the moment about possibly leaving the EU which we oh, hopefully yes. won't do that would Please be don't. I can't even vote <sighs> we don't want that to happen well at least we we the two of us do not want this to happen and Lola, Lola, really Lola doesn't, doesn't want it to happen either she's shaking her head so, yeah, so that is going on at the moment. But you have also been doing um, journalism to do with refugees and you did a whole series of pieces on Syrian refugees. You went and travelled with some of them. Is that right? That is right. And I really wanted to do more of that, but then my, then my client went bust. I mean, I did this series for Al Jazeera America and they shot and I did a couple of pieces for the indie and print and then that shot. So it's sort of, you know, the Sophie curse. Um, but it was really interesting I went I went to Munich in September when sort of the first big wave of um, mostly Syrian migrants arrived and yeah it did feel I mean it did feel something something really huge and historic and kind of biblical of just being at that train station seeing people pour out you know exhausted and clutching their children and pregnant women and women with newborns who said they had to stop every three hours. I found myself with this group of 12 people, mostly pregnant women, who didn't want to stay in Bavaria and so they just sort of slipped away and then they let me um, come along, you know, on their, on the sort of next phase of their journey, just, you know, deciding they went to one of the shelters and then left the shelter and then went back. So I spent sort of like much of the night with them. Um, and how were you communicating with them? Did you have a translator with you or were you talking in broken English or what languages were you talking well, partly. in? Well, partly. Some of them spoke English, but then actually I befriended some Syrians who'd been in Germany um, longer and they were acting as sort of anchor points. So they were, you know, all like cousins, for example, in that particular group. Mm. And they had agreed again, you know, before to meet up. And it was quite incredible. I mean, these were guys, yeah, they were sort of like 21, 22-year-old guys, you know, uh, who'd come to Germany completely on their own you know, a year or two ago, um, um, spoke really good German, so had learned really good German in a really short space of time, and suddenly found themselves having to look after this felt very vulnerable group, look to them as, well, you're the expert, you know, mm. you know, you know what we should do next, you know, where should we, should, you know, should we go on a train, should we go to the shelter, um, and that was, yeah, it was really interesting and heartwarming to see how um, these semi-local guys you know, really 
try to help out while dealing with their own difficulties. I mean, during that very intense night, at some point, I was talking to this um, this man who also, you know, and he sort of also interpreted for me, and he was the cousin on the ground, as it were. And then as we after spent hours and hours walking around together, he he said to me, oh, you know, I think I should really see a psychologist because sometimes my mind just goes blank because a bomb sort of exploded right in front of him and things he'd seen. And he said, you know, I don't really know what happens. I just get these really strong headaches and then everything goes blank. Um, and, and I kind of said, well, you know, you're so young, like hopefully, you know, I think it's a really, really good idea to see a psychologist and you're so young and hopefully, you know, you can sort of work on it I don't know what stupid things I said but something that was meant to be sort of encouraging you're young you have your life ahead of you and he just looked at me he said no I'm not young I feel inside I'm 100 years old and yeah um yeah it's a difficult story to tell journalistically because often when you tell it journalistically you feel you're 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 not in it you're recording yeah and also you're sort of telling the same story over and over again it's a very difficult story to tell to an audience and to really bring home why this is important you know yeah. because the basic story of these are people coming from a war zone and arriving in Europe I mean that's what it's been now for months um and to keep making that relevant and yeah that stories. every story you might think has some familiar aspects to other stories but they're still their they're still their stories like that's still what happened to them and they're still individual people oh absolutely and to them exactly as you say that is their story and and every story in itself is you know a massive massive story yeah difficult well not just did you have those moments as well when you're talking to people and you're you know that you're there to record and to listen um but the, the overwhelming sense that no matter how much you write about this or how much you try and portray it to people people just aren't going to get it because you just you can't like you can listen and you can absorb their words and you can you can feel for people and there's only so much that you can do as a writer. What role you're trying to, to be and you're there to record and to listen but then you want to help and then you want to get involved and you meet these people and you get ent- entangled in their lives and then you have to leave. Yeah, and of course, yeah, no, I, I, I know what you mean and of course you can't get entangled because you're a journalist and you do have to keep a certain distance, you know, you're not there as their campaigner, you're not, and, and I mean, that's, always the difficult thing with journalism that you have to get very close to the people you're writing about but you you can't be their NGO person that's not what you're there for I mean that's actually also not what they want you to do I mean they usually understand that you're a journalist and you just sort of do your thing and you Mm. you know tell it but um I do know that I, I spoke to quite a few journalists who especially with the refugee crisis who um maybe became more entangled or who, who was surprised at the extent that, you know, like if you, it affected them. And also the, the extent that you, you do ultimately want to help, you know, you do think, well, I don't know, you know, if you see a pregnant, thirsty woman along the trails, I mean, of course you're going to buy her a bottle of water. I mean, that yeah. is possibly against journalistic ethics because you shouldn't pay the people you write about or whatever. But But I think there are those situations where, you know, yeah, we're all, we're all humans. But. It does feel strange because then I came back to London. Of course, here we're so cut off from all that. I mean, in Germany, it's very, very present and it's a hugely complex situation. And then when I went back there at the end of December, even with in my own family and sort of circle of friends, everyone is involved in some way, you know. Mm-hmm. Lots of people, at that point, lots of people were 
volunteering or, you know, teaching German to refugees or it was just, like, absolutely there, um, there you know. Um, and then sort of, of course, in bad ways as well, you know, that like you hear about people um, throwing pigs' heads at refugee shelters or whatever, you know, or, like, firebombing. I mean, somehow it seemed like it was very, very present, whereas, of course, you hear and um, you don't... It's not very present at all. So you are finishing your third book right now. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about what it's about? It's about... Um... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I know, right? <laughs> Take this question. When it's not finished, you feel like you're going to crush it by talking about it too much. That it's not going to be real anymore. It makes sense in your head, but you worry when you talk does, about it. It does it's all not make sense beautifully in my head. It's about an East German <laughs> artist living in London... And she finds out something about her family that sort of sparks this quest into the past. Um, so it's about art, art and memory in the divided Germany. Excellent. That See, that was a good ceremony. Ceremony? Things I always, summary. Yeah, <laughs> things I always tell people not to be silly, and it's a totally reasonable question to ask, what's your book about? And write I, I hate that question too, though. You just, you just forget immediately what your book is about. I think the worst is that you, you say it, and then you think, that sounds really crap <laughs> like you say it and you think oh yeah story of art memory but that sounds lame but then you know it doesn't sound lame thank it you. sounds very good thank you and what are you reading right now what am i reading i am reading um see i forget everything that i'm reading when people ask me this question too oh i am reading a poetry collection called why god is a woman um, which is this satirical poetry collection about an island where women rule and men are su- uh, subjected to like sexual object- objectification. And um, they birth wings um, during their teenage years, which makes their backs bleed. Um, and then as they sprout these wings, they start to get all this attention from the women and um, are very self-conscious and some of them bind their wings closer to their bodies so that people can't see them. So it takes, obviously, um, female puberty and growing breasts and all of that stuff and flips it on its head. And it's really, really fantastic. I'm really loving it. So I'm reading that um, and I am reading the Bailey's Prize shortlist because I'm working with Bailey's at the moment. And what else am I reading? Oh, I'm really obsessed with The History of Dolls, which I don't know makes me a creep. It might do, but I'm reading... Dolls are so creepy. They are so fucking creepy, creepy. and especially in Japan. (laughs) So creepy. Um, so I'm reading this book called On Dolls, which is um, a short collection of essays. But I also have this book that I discovered at um, a place where I work, which I have borrowed and brought home because it's just it's from I think it's from the '90s, and it's called Living Dolls, and it's about again the history of making dolls, but men's relationship with dolls, and it's it's really creepy. So I'm reading that. I'm freaking myself out. <laughs> I, I do love how you just sort of expand my range of fiction into you know the wing sprouting the wing sprouting and dolls and there should be more more of all of that (laughs) I mean that's the other thing and that sort of you know slightly lost culture my my grandma's eastern German heritage that part that's now Poland I mean they had the wackiest stories and there were all these but they were all told as things that actually happened like um 
you know, you'd regularly consult a medium. I mean, I told you before about this other medium, but this was... <laughs> yeah, Sophie went to a medium who spoke to her thyroid. Yeah, I did go to a medium who spoke to my thyroid, but my excuse is it's in the family. So my, my grandma had this story about if money went missing in the house, I mean, obviously you wouldn't call police. You'd call the medium who'd tell you who the thief was. And the medium was called Frau Gunther Geffertz, and she couldn't eat with metal cutlery because hands would sort of pull up with magnetic force so she had to be given wooden cutlery I see this stuff there's just so many stories everywhere so many stories everywhere yes wow I can't believe I've now told the story because I meant to put it into my fiction and now I might just I'll just steal it no it might just vanish that's true it's been released people have heard it people have heard it but there you go Anyway, if you read about wooden cutlery in any of my books, then you know. <laughs> I know that. why. Like, you know why. You know why. Oh. Well, thank you very much for allowing me to interrogate you for the podcast. <laughs> very, very nice of you. <laughs> thank you. I don't know if any of this makes any sense. I, I think it does. I think it does. Across countries and continents and you know, I think they know it's, it's all linked it's, it's all, all about finding the stories of different cultures and the divides and bringing them together and tracing those stories I think that's basically everything that we've talked about is that about is tracking down stories which was said. planned beautifully said thank you Jen you're that's very it. welcome healing the divide oh Ooh. get that on a t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> okay guys so we're gonna go and Lola says bye too um and uh, yeah we'll speak to you later Thanks, Sophie. Thank you. Bye. Thanks very much to Sophie for coming on this month's podcast. As I said, her books are The Registrar's Manual for Detecting Forced Marriages and Of Love and Other Wars. If you would like to be notified of future episodes of this podcast, you can email me at genvcampbell at gmail.com and you will get added to the podcast mailing list. In the meantime, you can find me on YouTube over at youtube.com forward slash genvcampbell and also on Twitter at Aeroplane Girl. I hope you guys are having a wonderful week and I'll speak to you very, very soon. Lots of bookish love. Bye.